Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussions, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Raphael T. at U308 Generalist, Bart P. and Gordon E. Marcelo Lopez has joined us. Marcelo is Senior Portfolio Manager at L2 Capital Partners a Brazil-based asset management firm that provides a number of funds and services to individuals, companies, and pensions, to name a few clients served. You can learn more about the firm on their website, l2capital.com.br. Marcelo, it's good to have you on the show and welcome. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been uh, listening to it for a while and I, I really like the interviews. And, and also, uh, Happy New Year. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Happy New Year to you and uh, appreciate the good comments on our show and, and uh, appreciate the feedback. Hopefully it's uh, somewhat useful. Can you tell us uh, where you're based out of? Give us some information on your background and then tell us why you joined up with L2 Capital. Sure. Um, well, L2 Capital is an independent asset management company based in Brazil. To talk about L2 Capital, I've got to actually talk a little bit about my career in the financial markets. So, uh, well, it all started when I was doing the trainee program at Lloyds Bank in Brazil in the late 90s, uh, when the Russian crisis happened and the long-term capital management went belly up. Uh, as you can suspect, the Brazilian stocks crashed big time, and I thought it was the best time to start an investment fund focused on Brazilian equities. So um, I resigned from Lights Bank and started my first investment fund at the end of 1998. And uh, it, to me, it was the best time to buy equities in Brazil. Um, shares of profitable companies that pay high dividends, and, and I mean high dividends, like 15, 18, 20% per annum, uh, with a moat against its competitors were trading at less than the cash they have in the bank. Uh, it was just ridiculous. So uh, this fund I started returned over 200% to investors in less than a year and a half. And uh, not, not because I was brilliant, but just the opportunity was just too great. So um, after that, I, I thought the market was a bit toppy and I needed more knowledge. So I closed the fund, returned the money to investors, and I went to Spain where I did my MBA. After the MBA, I went to Finland to do my specialization in finance. And uh, after that, I moved to London to work and pay for this whole thing. Um, in London, I worked for a big hedge fund called Gartmore. Uh, it was then acquired by Henderson's Global Investors until the end of 2006. So uh, my job there was to travel around the world looking for opportunities to invest in. And at the end of 2006, I believed I had found a great investment opportunity, which was real estate uh, in Brazil. So again, I left my job and decided to invest in real estate. And um, I founded a company that went to grow into one of the biggest real estate firms in Brazil. Uh, today, this company is owned by Julius Baer and it's a reference in the country. So in 2009, I decided to go back to the financial markets and founded L2 Capital, uh, as I mentioned to you, an asset management company. 
And uh, the idea was to focus on opportunities globally and to look for asymmetric investment themes. And I'm sure we are going to talk about a few of those today. Well, very good. And certainly a good set of circumstances uh, when you mentioned what happened in Brazil. And I suspect we'll get that same set of circumstances again in the broad market. I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to that day where you can step out and, and scoop up some amazing businesses at, at severe discounts. And uh, yeah, what an experience. And, and it sounds like you've been in the in the business for quite a while, Marcelo. Well, tell us a little yeah. bit more about the firm now. Who was behind it? What investment strategies are used? And what are the house rules for clients? And can you speak to size in terms of assets under management? Sure. Uh, well, starting from the from the end, uh, today we have just over $200 million in assets under management. Uh, most of our clients are Brazilian or Brazilian-based. Um, our partners are uh, in Brazil, Australia, in, in the US. Um, and um, Basically, as, as I mentioned before, the, the idea is to focus on opportunities globally. So, um, you know, we, we look at things like uranium, which to me is the pretty much the, the biggest asymmetric investment opportunity I've ever seen. But other things too, like shipping, gold, etc. So uh, we, we, are, we look at all sectors and all markets and we come up with a few good ideas. We investigate them deeply. If we don't have the resources internally, we normally hire um, a third party to help us with the research. Uh, and we go where others are afraid to go. And can you speak to uh, the house rules for clients, Marcelo? So if, if are you guys taking new clients, what's the requirements for people who might be interested? Sure. Well, uh, I'll, I'll ask them to to get in touch with us, and we are very prompt to reply. Uh, they can send an email to info at l2capital.com.br, and uh, we'll get back to them. Okay. Very well. And what are you seeing out there for the broad market, Marcelo? Where are we headed in 2020, and how are you positioning the firm? Well, that's a, that's a pretty good question for which I have no uh, easy answer. And uh, uh, the reality is that no one knows where the market's going to go. But uh, th these markets are being driven by money printing. So whilst the central banks uh, continue to print money, Andrew, we're going to see this market uh, do well. Now, uh, the day of reckoning will, will come for sure. Uh, you, you cannot print your way out of, uh, out of a recession or anything like that. So uh, we are skeptical about this market. We are looking at a few uh, big opportunities, but we are very skeptical of the market in general. It's a, again, it's a market that's been driven by money printing. And uh, in the past, there's never been a case of successful money printing uh, for, for investments. And let's talk a little bit about some of the other sectors you're seeing out there, Marcelo, that you guys like at the firm that you're looking into besides uranium. What are the things you're seeing out there? Sure, uh, Andrew. Well, we, we, we like shipping. Uh, we think, again, it's an asymmetrical investment opportunity. Uh, it's a cyclical sector and, uh, you know, uh, you want to move your stuff from point A to point B. It's the same for you to, to use my ship or someone else's ship, pretty much. I'm doing a bit of a generalization here, but you get the idea. 
Um, so the way these companies compete with one another is basically through pricing. And they cut prices way below where they should. Everyone starts losing money. And, uh, and they play the, the last man standing game where uh, they just have to be standing when the, the competitors forced to get the, the market. Um, and, and they keep doing this until pretty much everyone's broke. A uh, few companies disappear, old ships get retired. And, uh, and after that, because there are less ships in the water, uh, their pricing power increases dramatically and they make a fortune. So um, one of the most important indicators uh, one has to look, especially on the supply side, is the order book, which means um, how many ships are being produced now. Um, if there's a lot of ships being produced now, rates should come down next year or in a couple of years when those ships hit the water. Conversely, if there are a few ships being constructed now, rates tend to go higher. Um, Politics is also important. Uh, they, they, they play an important role in the sector. I'm talking about sanctions, trade war, etc. Um, so uh, in, in terms of shipping in general, where, where are we today? Um, well, uh, today most companies are leaving behind 11 years of a bear market. So there were a few bankruptcies and, and many dilutions uh, recently. Uh, by recently, I mean this last year and, and, and 2018. Uh, but the charter rates are way higher than what they were. So you, you look at many companies and they are still trading below NAV and they are making a lot of money. Traditionally, Andrew, uh, they use this money to buy new ships, but uh, this time is different. Uh, they are using the money to pay dividends, buy back stock and, 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 and pay down debt. So this combined with the lowest order books on record makes me feel like the sector should perform really well this year. Obviously, uh, there, there are many subsectors uh, within shipping and I'm not bullish on all of them, but um, I'm fairly bullish on, on tankers. Uh, for, for tankers specifically, the order book is thin. Um, they're growing at long haul potential, uh, which increases demand. And um, IMO, IMO 2020 should play an important role here. Well, very well, and that certainly is a capital-intensive business and uh, certainly an area that we are looking at, mostly from the sidelines. We still have some exposure there, but uh, certainly an area that is, has certainly been covered recently and, and uh, has been performing quite well. So that's uh, congratulations to you on pointing that out. And Marcelo, where are you seeing risks in the market today? Uh, can you point out some areas that you have that are kind of a caution sign for you? Sure, Andrew. Um, well, I, I sent a letter to our uh, investors last week in which I name a few of the risks um, like the Russia-US relationship, trade war, Brexit, Greece, uh, Deutsche Bank, etc. And these are all well known to everyone. But there are a couple of risks that stand out to me, especially because I don't think people are paying too much attention to them. Um, the first one is, uh, is, is the, well, the first one is the passive funds. Um, so low fees and lots of uh, liquidity makes money flow into these funds. And uh, because there is a computer program buying the stocks inside these funds, there is very little, if any, fundamental analysis done over these names. Um, and not only that, but the illusion of liquidity is ridiculous. There are, there are a number of ETFs that trade with way more volume that, uh, than their underlying assets. 
let, let me give you an example that I've used in the past, um, an ETF called uh, HYG, which is the High Yield Corporate Bonds ETF. Uh, this ETF trades around a billion dollars a day, but most of the underlying assets don't trade every day. And, you know, uh, how can that be possible? Um, and I know that some of these ETFs have uh, lines of credit for emergencies and uh, they are not as big as some mutual funds, but still, if something really bad happens, uh, some of these ETFs will have to freeze redemptions. Uh, uh, please, I'm not talking about uh, HYG specifically in this case, just, just an example. Um, and I talked about the illusion of liquidity, but there's one more in my humble opinion, the illusion of security. For instance, uh, these passively managed funds that, um, in the case of bonds, for instance, account for over 40% of the market, are very similar to one another. So look at Petrobras's bonds. Um, the company is highly indebted, and because of that, its participation in the indexes is higher, making the passive funds go and buy even more of its bonds. And because they buy more, the yields go down. So now we've got a situation that one of the most indebted companies in the world has bonds that everyone wants to buy and has low yields. It just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, a few months ago, some of Petrobras's bonds traded at a negative rate. Can you believe it? Um, and, and, and the other risk I see is the private equity bubble. Because year after year, the private equity companies are managing to raise more money. Uh, we saw the Vision Fund, which was launched in 2016. Uh, they made so many bad investments that there are people out there swearing that it is a fraud. But, you know, that's a different topic. Uh, going back to the, the uh, private equity bubble, investors tend to think that these investment vehicles are a miracle that combines low risk with high returns. Um, we might see the, the acquisition of Walgreens by KKR. Um, and if it really goes through, uh, this, should, this can become the poster child of this madness. Uh, if this deal goes ahead, will be the, it will be the largest one to date. So we're talking about a deal of 70 plus billion dollars, most of it financed by debt. Now, uh, you've got to ask yourself why an investor would rather own Walgreens inside a, a private equity fund and not in the stock market, where he or she can have some liquidity and don't need to wait seven or more years to exit the position. And um, the one thing that comes to mind is the low volatility. So inside the, the private equity fund, Walgreens would not be marked to market every single minute of the day, but it will be priced according to a model. So it will eliminate almost all volatility. Uh, although the risk to me is much bigger as the company would go private at a higher valuation and loaded with debt, uh, many investors will see it as a low risk as the model will price those shares, not the market. It's, it's just insane. Um, in, the, in the letter I wrote to, to investors, I mentioned a couple of acquisitions led by KKR. Uh, one in 2007, just before the crash of a weight of a company called TXU Corp. Uh, it was a $30 billion deal. The, it was the biggest deal until then. And uh, the company declared bankruptcy in 2014. The other one was the famous acquisition of RJR Nabisco in 1988. And again, at the time, the biggest leverage buyout in history. And a book was even written about it, uh, Barbarians at the Gate, which... I actually enjoyed and I, I recommend.
Um, and um, now pension funds and other professional investors, uh, which have to deliver returns at about six, seven percent per annum, which is way above the current yields in the markets, have to look at this kind of stuff. And uh, and the private equity funds and uh, venture capital funds are raising money like there's no tomorrow. Again, lots of risk, but low volatility, and uh, that might be trouble in the future, Andrew. Well, certainly a set of disasters coming down the pipeline, and you've certainly highlighted some areas that, that have got to have some form of, of a reset. Certainly interesting. Appreciate you sharing that. Oh, my pleasure. I want to ask you, and I like to ask a lot of our guests uh, often, just speaking outside of, I guess, equities for a moment, what are your thoughts on physical gold as a wealth protection vehicle? Well, I... I like it gold. I like gold a lot and it has been part of my portfolio for many years. And I, I strongly recommend that people keep at least 5% of their assets in gold. Uh, uh, you mentioned physical gold. It suits me better to hold gold physically. Um, but uh, honestly, I, I'm not a big fan of the, of the stocks, especially the small caps. Uh, I understand that the big returns are there, uh, but my views is uh, that you probably get a few right, make some money, think you're a genius, uh, then keep investing and lose it all. Um, so I'd rather stick with uh, the physical uh, or even the big established producers. Um, it, you know, gold for me is not to, to make a fortune, it's not to become rich, but uh, I, I use gold as a hedge. So the small caps make little sense to me. Uh, and this to me, Andrew, I'm, I'm sure it makes a lot of sense to many other investors and you know, I'm okay with that. And also I wanna talk just a little bit more about uh, the natural resource sector backing up a little bit more, looking over at base metals. Um, is there anything in the base metal sector that you like besides uranium once again? And then also, are you doing any work on looking at the offshore uh, oil services sector? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. I, I've been looking at uh, oil. Uh, I think oil might be an opportunity. There's a company that I like, um, IPCO, International Petroleum Company. Uh, they are trading below 50% of NAV. Uh, they belong to the London family. They, they're increasing production. They're, they're increasing reserves. They uh, they, they would generate a lot of cash this year. Um, and uh, you know, and, and, and uh, I, I believe it's uh, uh, companies like that are a bargain because no one wants to touch oil. People think oil is uh, something from the past. Uh, they, they should look for batteries now. But uh, these things from the past, let's say it like that, uh, uh, is where we can find great opportunities. Look, in, in, uh, over the past 10 years, the best uh, performing stocks were the cigarette stocks, the tobacco stocks. So. Uh, and, and, and that's something that uh, it's, you know, people wouldn't like to touch. Uh, so I think oil might be the tobacco companies of the future. Yeah, I think there's some interesting stuff going on with that. Well, let's talk uranium. We get these questions a lot once again, and I know you've been asked this many times before, but when do you see this sector notably moving and what single key driver will push it higher? Well, I suspect, Andrew, we are going to start seeing something towards the end of this year, more likely um, the beginning of next year. And uh, this is because everyone is waiting for Trump's decision on the nuclear fuel working group. And 
once a decision is made, we might see the beginning of a new contracting cycle. Uh, uranium prices are only going to go up if and when utilities start buying. So uh, once utilities start buying, and, and bear in mind that these contracts taking between three to nine months to be signed, uranium prices will start to move. Um, so uh, the first ones to, to, to sign long-term contracts, in my opinion, will, will get a better deal. Uh, this is because they're going to, to be paying for the production that's already in place. Now, uh, to bring mines that are in carry maintenance back online, the price has to go up more. Um, and, and to make it worth it for, for new projects to be developed into a mine, the price has to go up much, much more. Now we are talking about 55 to $75 a pound. Um, and this, I believe, should be achieved over a period of two, three, and maybe four years from now. Um, now, people who invest in uranium have to have a long-term view. I, I have written about it before, but it's always good to remember. Uh, Peter Lynch, who was a fund manager and, and has one of the best track records of the industry, uh, managed a fund called Magellan. Um, I believe that from 1977 until 1990, his Magellan fund returned 29% per year to investors, which is impressive. The thing is, uh, the average investor of his fund lost money, according to Fidelity. And this is because they acted emotionally. So they bought shares at the wrong times and they sold shares at the wrong times. And, um, and, and I would like to say that very clearly to, to Iranian investors. Uh, you're in for a marathon, not a sprint. Think long term. I think that's a good way to look at it. And patience is, is really key and solvency as well. I want to move over just the other side of the sector here uh, to Japan for a moment and the restart troubles that they've had in Japan. What do you see happening here? And is Japan really that important going forward, given the other industry factors that are positive? Yeah, well, I think not. Uh, honestly, Japan uh, will restart its reactors. When it will restart its reactors, nine are in operation today. Uh, a few of those should be shut down temporarily uh, because of the terrorist uh, upgrades they have to, the anti-terrorist upgrades they have to make. Um, but Japan is not going to move the needle too much for the market, I believe. I think uh, what we have to look at is uh, China, Russia, and India. These countries are investing heavily in uranium uh, and, and nuclear reactors. Obviously, they need clean uh, energy, clean, cheap, reliable energy. So the growth will be obviously in Asia, uh, ex-Japan, in my opinion. Very well. I think Japan, if you can get a bonus out of Japan over the next couple of years, I think that's fine. And, you know, the, the anti-terrorist upgrades, Marcelo, I, it's, it's comical to me. Why not look at hydro facilities like facilities that have a lot of water behind them that are obviously critical, not only for the energy, but uh, also for the fact that people live downstream uh, in most cases, uh, refineries, natural gas, power plants, et cetera. Um, you know, just the, the whole the whole anti-terrorist upgrades uh, is is a little bit comical to me, but that's just my view on it. Um, but anyway, no, let's, let's and, move. And, yeah. And uh, Andrew, I, I spoke to a few of the Japanese, uh, especially the uh, the traders and a couple of buyers there, um, and they are very slow moving. But 
you've you've got to you've got to realize that the sentiment in Japan is still not very favorable towards uh, nuclear energy, uh, but it's favorable enough that they brought it back. So after Fukushima, they uh, turn off all nuclear reactors. Now nine of these reactors are are, are back into uh, production, and. Um, uh, just so you know, for instance, uh, with uh, uh, mercury, uh, they they banish it in the 60s, and and that was it, and they they never went back. So the the fact that they they came back to nuclear energy tells us a lot about um, how well they think about nuclear energy. Right, absolutely, a resilient people, and certainly uh, nuclear power, obviously, uh, for them is very important and. Uh, it's an important source of energy, just period, just because of what it can do. Let's come back to uranium, uh, back to the mining sector specifically, Marcelo. How are you allocating capital in the sector? Can you speak to the number of vehicles you might be using, the sizing of those positions? And then also, can you tell us the the size of the uranium fund at L2? Okay, um, the, the specific vehicle we have to invest in uranium has today just over $20 million. Um, and it's Pretty much fully allocated, uh, uh, fully invested. Now uh, we we have probably ninety percent plus invested in this vehicle. Uh, we are launching a new ETP this month. Um, it's going to be listed in Vienna, Austria, and the, one of the things we're going to invest in will be uranium. Um, and uh, what we are we are looking at. Uh, uh, at the moment, is the the U.S. To be honest, um, as I mentioned before, the outcome of the nuclear fuel working group should be out any day now, and I expect U.S. producers to have some sort of advantage or or, or being benefited by it. So uh, we have increased our allocation to U.S. names. Um, I'm, I'm sure you remember well, but after the the result of Section 232 back in July. Some of the shares in the uranium space in the U.S. collapsed. Um, now, I believe the risk return of the U.S. names is quite enticing. That, that I mean, if nothing happens, uh, which I hear is unlikely, there's not a lot of space for the stocks to crash again. But if something good happens, we might see a re-rating. So um, we 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 like the U.S. names at the moment. Yes, and I would also point out too that they're, they didn't even hit their lows, uh, at least the key names that I can think of at the moment. They didn't even come back and hit their lows from, I believe it was uh, 2016. Certainly, if we can get them to go back there, I mean, that would be a great buying opportunity. It doesn't look like that would happen, but uh, but certainly we had, we're, we're presented with a nice opportunity to add some more, and we did. Can you speak to the uh, the number of uranium equities that you guys might have in your fund, uh, maybe just a general target of, of, of count of positions you like. Um, and then also, sure. can you speak to also the size? So how you guys look at allocating? Well, uh, until July, we had 13 uh, positions in our portfolio. And, and I'm talking about the, the uranium fund, okay? Um, after uh, July, with uh, with so many bargains that we saw in the U.S., we we end up increasing our our uh, investments. And today we we have approximately 20 names. Some of them are very very small position, one uh, percent maybe or two uh, percent. 
um, and some of them are, are big positions, like seven, eight, ten percent. Um, it, it pretty much depends on uh, uh, what stage of development the the project is in, what kind of uh, license it has, and and all that. Um, and uh, in, in terms of uh, of uh, number of equities, we we tend to keep this that way unless uh, one or another has have a huge run, and then we might reallocate. But uh, we we intend to keep it around twenty. Yeah. Are you guys looking out uh, over to the developers and explorers outside of the U.S.? Um, can you speak to some of the jurisdictions that you guys might be looking at? Can you also, I guess, also on this subject, might as well bring it up here, uh, management team, uh, how important is that for you guys, uh, things like capital structure? Can you speak to the other, I guess, the, the far end of the spectrum as far as developers, explorers, uh, and are you guys also involved in any physical funds? Okay, so uh, first of all, in terms of regions, um, I think one region that uh, people don't talk too much about is Africa. And um, I believe it's going to be a lot of interest in, the, in Africa in the coming years. And this is simply because the, the Russians and the Chinese are expanding their nuclear programs and they need a steady supply of uranium. So uh, you ask yourself, where, where are they going to get it? In the US? I doubt it. In Canada, unlikely. Yeah, there's one company there that um, has a Chinese partner, but still, uh, how much more are they going to increase? Maybe 40, 50%? No, I doubt it's going to go over that. Uh, Europe, no way. Uh, Australia, very difficult. Um, South America, possibly, but there's still no history of uranium production in some of the countries. So we might be years away from that. Um, so, so we are left with Africa, where I think the next uh, big battle for uranium mines will, will happen. And uh, we are trying to position ourselves to profit from it. Uh, there are still some difficulties in producing in Africa. The cost of production is uh, normally high, uh, but there's a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, uh, cost is not the number one priority for buyers. How does physical funds play into your thought? I mean, to some degree, I mean, certainly over here for us, when we enter into uranium, we tend to go for that gain in uranium, and that is with the equities. How do you guys look at physical uh, holdings or physical funds out there that are listed? And then lastly, Marcelo, but management team, how important are management teams to you? Yeah, we do have an allocation to physical funds. We like them, especially when they are trading at a discount. So you can buy something cheap at a discount is quite uh, interesting uh, for us. So you pretty much guess which one I'm talking about. But um, uh, we, we start increasing our position towards the end of the year when the discount uh, widen. And uh, today is a, it's a relative uh, OK position for us. Um, but uh, so, so, yeah, I think the physical one, uh, the physical funds are uh, interesting. They give us exposure to the metal. Um, it, obviously, we're not going to make as much money in a physical fund as we intend to make in the mining companies, but the risk is way lower and we still participate in the upside. Um, 
in terms of management team, uh, well, management team is pretty much the most important thing for, for uranium investors, I believe. Uh, we look for people who have done it before, who has experience doing it, developing mines before, uh, and being successful uh, with that uh, as well. Uh, uranium is a very unique commodity. It's not like iron ore, I have gold or copper or whatever. So if you have experience with one commodity, doesn't mean that it will apply successfully to successfully to uranium. So uh, we look at uh, teams that have done it before, have have uh, experience with uranium before, and know the sector well. That's uh, I, I believe it's pretty much the most important thing you can look at. Absolutely, I agree with you 100%. Uh, it is number one here as well. Certainly, management team is king to us, and uh, being in the uranium equities, we're, we're certainly going for the gold in uranium uh, by by being placed with the equities. Now, on the same lines, what should investors avoid in this sector, Marcelo? You've been here for a couple of years. You've been probably looking at the sector for longer than that. Can you give us some specifics on red flags that you see in this sector that investors should avoid? Well, uh, there are lots of companies that um, uh, used to mine uh, whatever was hot a few years ago, and uh, then they they noticed that the uranium market uh, uh, is very promising. So they changed names to focus on uranium. That should be a red flag. So people should look into that. Um, what else? Uh, jurisdiction is very important too. So there are, there are some proven jurisdictions that are uh, easy for you to uh, to assess and, and, and see if it's worthwhile to mine uranium there or not. So um, for instance, uh, Virginia has in, in the US has, uh, has had lots of trouble with, uh, with uh, uranium uh, production. Uh, so has Spain, so has Peru. So people should look at this jurisdiction and, and see if they have a history of producing uranium and uh, it, it, hopefully a good history and then looking at management team and all that. So um, jurisdiction is very important. It, you know, it, it doesn't matter if you have a good project, if you can never touch the resources, it's, um, it, it, it's worth zero. We'd like to encourage investors to sit back, grab a Coke or something, uh, whatever your favorite beverage is, and really study all the filings of these companies and just watch them. You can learn sure. so much just by watching what they do, looking at the press releases, looking at the news events, looking through the things that happened six months ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, making those comparisons and just sitting from the sidelines and watching what they do. You can start to weed them out just, just by being just in the crowd, watching the game, not really having a position other than popcorn and, and maybe a Coke in your hand. <laughs> so I think that's Absolutely. a good idea. And, uh, and we've had time to do that, which has really been a blessing uh, in disguise, I think. Yeah, what you said now is, 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 is just brilliant. Uh, people should, uh, once they select a, a stock to look at, they should go back uh, five, 10 years, which is what we've done, and look at the numbers, Look, read the report, see what management were saying uh, 10 years ago and see how it played out, you know? Um, and and, and you, you'll see some consistencies and inconsistencies in uh, what management is talking and and you can question them about that. And it's a way more uh, productive discussion 
which you will learn a lot from it and learn a lot about the company too. It's a lot of work and you, you spend a lot of time, but that, that's the way to do it. Are there any companies out there that you'd like to point out specifically that, of course, L2 is, is favorable of, Marcelo, or give us some industry people that you respect and like that investors should pay attention to? I was expecting this question, Andrew, because um, uh, when we met uh, here in June, uh, you, you pretty much uh, asked me a gazillion times about this, and I managed to escape, but I'll... <laughs> Uh, we were building our position in the company, so I wouldn't be able to talk to you about it. But uh, today we are we are comfortable with it, and and obviously it's public information. It's on the company's website as well, so uh, nothing I'm going to tell you here is uh, news. But we like Encore a lot. Uh, they they tick a lot of boxes for me. Uh, the directors have done it before, and they were extremely successful. Uh, they they have experience in various areas of the uranium market, and I mean uh, uh, geology, permitting, development, production, etc. Uh, they are focusing on the U.S. and and the U.S. is the biggest consumer of uranium in the world, so it makes sense to have mines there. The the jurisdiction is fantastic. Uh, besides, they have access to the White Mesa Mill. Um, they have low cash burn, uh, enough cash to, to last for the next few years. And, and the directors receive no salaries. Uh, there's an actual alignment of interest uh, with shareholders. So uh, this is the kind of company we look at. It does provide a, a model company to take a look at in its, in its stage jurisdiction and situation. It is certainly a model business to look at. And I think, you know, going back to what you said when we met, it is important with peers, investor peers in the sector to go out and to look at companies, get opinions of others uh, about the same company to have these discussions, because I think it's constructive. Again, we've had years to sit here and sort these companies out, and I think it's constructive to put together some good minds in the sector to uh, compare and contrast, I guess, and uh, you know talk about the different companies. And I think that's been a good thing for us. And I, I've always certainly sought out you know, people that want to share their opinions on on companies and so forth. Now, outside of the maybe the publicly listed companies, uh, Marcelo, is there any key people in the, in the industry that you like as far as for information, research, uh, you know, consultants or any of that? Is there anybody that you think the investor audience should maybe pay attention to or get in touch with? Yeah, well, I think there is a lot of material out there and uh, UXC and TradeTech are good sources of information, but you, you have to pay to get access to it. Um, and for most investors, I believe the Twitter, it's a, a good source of information, believe it or not. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, information out there in the Uranium community is, is just brilliant. You know, they, they share information, they don't hold it back. Uh, you ask them a question, they they answer you to the best of their knowledge, and it's uh, I'm I'm really impressed. I've never seen a market like that. Information is uh, is crucial to to make a decision, and um, the the uranium market is very opaque, but the uranium community makes it easier for investors to uh, to get information about it. So I I, I believe for uh, normal investors getting on. Twitter is a it's a good way of getting access to information. Well, Marcelo, for the audience who uh, wants to learn more about yourself and also get more information about L2 Capital, how might they get in touch with you? 
Sure. Well, um, again, I'm on Twitter, so uh, they, they can reach me out there uh, or they can send me an email directly. Uh, my email address is marcelo at l2capital.com.br. So if they want to chat about uh, anything, markets, well, uh, just, just drop me an email. Very well. Well, Marcelo, it was uh, good to chat, good to catch up, and uh, thanks for coming on the show and looking forward to having you back. Oh, thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure, and uh, congratulations on the program. I really enjoyed it.